So if you've got a child three years through third grade, you want to send them up to the front. Miss Jennifer is here to uh, receive them. It's always good to see a bunch of kids in worship on Sunday morning, and uh, it's always a good sign of a church when you've got children in the in the house and they're excited and love being here and learning about the Lord Jesus, making professions of faith, following a believer's baptism. It's a good, good thing when the church has children. And so let's never uh, forget how blessed we are when we have children that are part of our church. We must always seek that as a priority. I want to encourage you to take your Bible and um, I want you to just open to Matthew 28. We're going to look at a couple different passages of Scripture this morning. And, and I want to speak to, to this subject, the ordinances. Uh, last Sunday... We saw baptism this morning. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And so I just want to speak to the ordinances of the church. I, I think sometimes in, in all of life, but really in the church in particular, there's, some, there, there's certain things that we just kind of scratch our head at times and wonder, why do we do this? You ever wondered why we do some of the things that we do? I mean, think about it. If you were a person who had no connection to church life, you, you, you obviously weren't a Southern Baptist, you weren't a follower of Jesus, you just kind of strolled in here on a Sunday morning and you sat down and observed what we do, you would probably scratch your head and think, these people are crazy. Why are they singing about a guy who hung on a cross? Why are they uh, rejoicing in blood being spilled? Why are they eating this bread that doesn't have much taste and drinking this little bit of grape juice? Why are they dunking people in a bunch of water? And why would somebody allow them to put them under the water? Because that's really one of the greatest fears that we all have is to drown. I, I can concur with that. The whole thought of being pushed under the water and not able to come back up is a little fearful. And, and so what if you were a person who had no context with the church, no uh, history with the church? How would you think about some of the things that we do? Why do we do what we do? Kind of reminds me of a, the old story. You've probably heard it, but it reminds me of this young couple who had been married just a few weeks. And after they returned from their honeymoon, the uh, new young bride wanted to impress her new husband, her new groom. And so she uh, fixed, prepared and fixed dinner every night. So her husband, new husband, would come home from work, and there it would be on the table food prepared. I mean, he wanted some of his favorite meals. And, and being young, she didn't have a lot of recipes. And so after about three or four weeks, she'd already gone through her, her list of recipes multiple times. And so after a while, uh, the young husband began to wonder why his wife, every time she baked a ham, would cut off one end of it. And so he just asked her one, one evening, babe, this, uh, this meal is awesome. I, I'm not disparaging that at all. I love this. It's one of my favorite things that you fix. But I just have a question. Why is it that when you fix ham, you cut the end of it off before you bake it? And so she thought about it for a second, shrugged her shoulders, and says, you know, I really have no idea. I grew up, and my mom did that, so I watched her and helped her in the kitchen. And, and so she just said, I guess I do it because my mom always did. And so uh, the next weekend, actually, her parents came over for, for a meal to visit with their, this new young couple. And so her mom and, and her were in the kitchen fixing dinner for that evening's meal. And she just asked her mom, Mom, my uh, hubby asked me the other day why I fix baked ham like this by cutting the end of it off. And she says, and I told him that I did it because you do it. And so why do you cut the end of the ham off? And she thought for a second. She said, you know, I really don't, don't know why I did it. 
And so they both went to the phone, picked up the phone, dialed the number, called Grandma, because Grandma obviously is the, the genesis of all of this. They called Grandma, asked her the question, Grandma, why is it that you always cut the end of the ham off when you baked ham for the family? And she says, you crazy girls, I cut the end of the ham off because it wouldn't fit in the pan that I had. And so sometimes we do things because we see others doing them, and yet we don't really understand the why or the purpose behind it. In fact, when it comes to the church, we can routinely, even religiously, do something without understanding the reason for which we're doing it. We don't understand the purpose behind it. It happens all of the time. I mean, for instance, this morning, why, do, why are we gathered here for worship? Why couldn't we just kind of sit at home and, and do our religious thing by ourselves? Why do we gather together for church? Why do we gather together as the church on Sundays? Why do we preach from the Bible? Why do we sing songs? Why do we baptize? Why do we observe the Lord's Supper? Why do we do what we do? This morning I want to answer, ask and answer two questions. I can't answer all of those in the time that's allotted to me. But um, I want to answer two main questions before us, and that is, why is it that we practice baptism, and why do we observe the Lord's Supper? Last Sunday morning, one of our ladies was baptized. Many of you, when you saw Gloria being baptized, probably wondered, why is she being baptized? Uh, Here's a lady that's a, a pillar in our church, serves in a lot of capacities, loves the Lord, loves sharing her faith. Why was she baptized? Well, she shared in her testimony that the reason she was being baptized was because she had made a profession of faith as a teenager and was baptized, but later on began to realize that that was nothing more than a religious decision, and at the age of 27, understood the gospel and surrendered herself to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and so at that moment is when she believes that she truly became a follower of Jesus Christ. And so from that moment till recently, she thought that being baptized prior to her conversion was sufficient. Her and I got into a conversation about a year ago. She's been praying through this, thinking through this, reading scripture, learning, studying, and I've been praying for her until she finally came to a place where she realized, I need to get my baptism in order because, as we're going to see in a moment, the New Testament teaches us that baptism always follows conversion. And so Gloria wanted to make sure that her baptism in obedience to the Lord was in the proper order following her conversion experience. And so that raised the question for some of why was she being baptized? Why do we, any of us, get baptized is a greater question that we want to ask and answer this morning. Uh, We're going to have a special emphasis on baptism in just a few weeks, Mother's Day. Uh, We're going to emphasize baptism. So I'm going to challenge you this morning greatly. If you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism, you need to be baptized on May 13th, Mother's Day. So if you're here, bring a change of clothes and, and we'll get you in the proper order and obedience when it comes to baptism. So, in a few minutes, we're also going to observe the Lord's Supper. Why do we observe the Lord's Supper? Why do our deacons and elders, why do they go and pass these elements out? Why will we read scripture and spend some time praying? Why will we spend some time reflecting upon Jesus? Why do we do this ceremony? What is it all about? Do we do these things like the young bride, just because we saw uh, grandparents do it, and they saw their parents and grandparents do it, and so for 2,000 years or so, they've just kind of been carrying out what they saw the previous generation do, or is there purpose behind them? Are these empty religious actions, or are they purposeful, meaningful things that are ordained for us to do by the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Well, I believe the Bible speaks very clearly to the function and the purpose of both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And yet there's still confusion in the church regarding these two ordinances, as we call them as Southern Baptists. Why is there confusion when it comes to these two ordinances? Well, some of the confusion, I believe, stems from the fact that there is a growing biblical illiteracy in the church. You say, what do you mean by that? I can read. You may be able to read, but very few Christians actually read and study their Bible. Do you know that? There's some of you this morning, I'm not trying to be mean, I'm not trying to be hateful or anything like that, they're spiteful at all, because number one, I don't know who they are, but I'm convinced that there are some of you sitting here, the only time you read or hear the Word of God over your heart is when you come to church. And that's a shame, because you're missing out on what God has given you and what God wants to give you in your life. And so the reason some of the confusion surrounds these two ordinances is simply because a biblical illiteracy. You don't know the Word of God. You don't know what God has taught in us or in His Word to us. And so today we see a growing number of Christians who simply are not reading and studying the Word of God. Then there's some confusion that comes because of experiences in different denominations. For example, and I'm not picking on any denomination, but Catholicism has a very different understanding of the Lord's Supper and of baptism than we do as evangelicals and specifically as Southern Baptists. For instance, Catholic doctrine teaches individuals receive grace through the partaking of the seven sacraments. You know what the sacraments probably are. They are baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, or what we would call communion or Lord's Supper, penance, anointing of the sick, matrimony, and the holy orders. That is the God calling men and women to serve in a very specific roles within uh, the church. And so the Catholic Church believes that when you partake of the sacrament, or what we would call an ordinance, that you're actually receiving grace. In other words, salvation is being imparted to you through that sacrament. We as evangelical, evangelicals, I'm going to get my words uh, straight here in just a minute, but we believe that the New Testament teaches that believers receive grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that by faith, by, by grace through faith are we saved. And it's not a work of our hearts or work of our lives. It's something that God freely gives to us. And so at the moment of conversion, we receive all of the grace of God that we need for salvation. It's not something that we continue to work toward or something that we can lose. And so we believe Jesus ordained these two practices for the church, that of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're specifically commanded by Christ. They're specifically fleshed out in the New Testament church. And so this is why we call them ordinary today because they've been ordained by the Lord for us to follow. They don't give us grace, but instead they reflect grace already given to us in Christ. And so when we baptize a person, a new follower of Jesus, or a person who's followed Jesus for some time, but has yet to be baptized, they're not having grace imparted to them. They're testifying, as we're going to see in just a moment, that grace has already been given to them through Jesus. Now they want to declare that to the world. When they observe the Lord's Supper in just a moment, we're not receiving grace in that. We're remembering the grace that has already been given to us in Jesus. Today, I want to share with you what the Bible says about these ordinances, and in so doing, I want to answer these two questions that are on the screens. Why do we practice baptism? Why do we observe the Lord's Supper? And so let's tackle baptism. In baptism, we declare. In baptism, we are declaring what God has done for us. 
Jesus said just before he ascended to the Father, there in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus commands us as his church to baptize those who are new disciples, new followers of Jesus. Therefore, we baptize new believers in Christ because Jesus said so and also because Jesus modeled that. You remember there in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is baptizing there in the Jordan River and he's declaring there's going to come someone who is, uh, who is uh, someone that I'm not, even unwor- I'm not even worthy enough to untie their sandals or to loosen their sandals or to wash his feet. I'm not even worthy of a, to, to be in his presence. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes onto the scene. John looks over there and says, behold, the Lamb of God, and yet Jesus, the one who is much greater than John, comes into that water of the Jordan River and asks John to baptize him. Why? Because he's modeling something for us as the church that we were supposed to follow. And so we baptize because Jesus commanded it, and we baptize because Jesus modeled baptism. And so what's the purpose behind this? And we, we know he's told us to do it. And we know he modeled it. But what's the purpose behind baptism? Why is it that he established this ordinance for us in the church? Well, if you were to turn over to Acts chapter 8, I'm not going to ask you to do that. You can simply look at the screens this morning. But in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10, we have two different stories of individuals Hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding their sinfulness, and responding in faith. And the first step of obedience they took was to be baptized. The first one is in Acts chapter 8. You remember the story of Philip, who's this deacon. They've been ran out of Jerusalem because of persecution. He goes down or goes to the north to Samaria, preaches the gospel. Hundreds of people are coming to faith in Jesus. Great things are happening. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit tells Philip to get up and to go to a desert road that leads to Gaza. And there's no one out there, it makes no sense whatsoever for Philip to do that, to leave a very prosperous ministry, and yet God told him to do so. And so he leaves, he goes to the middle of the Gaza area on this deserted road, and all of a sudden he comes upon an Ethiopian eunuch and his entourage as they are coming from Jerusalem and heading back to Ethiopia. And as he approaches that entourage, he hears the Ethiopian eunuch, this guy who's a part of the court of Queen of Ethiopia, hears him reading from the from the 53rd chapter of the book Isaiah. And so he walks up and asks him, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless someone teaches me? And so Philip took this opportunity to take the word of God that was there by sovereign divine grace upon his life. He took that, preached the gospel to him, equated it to Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden this Ethiopian eunuch, this African, wants to place his faith in Jesus Christ. He does so, and immediately we see that he desires to be baptized. And so look with me, verse 36. It says, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the Ethiopian eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, most of your Bibles don't have 37, verse 37, in the text, but it's probably footnoted like my Bible, and that simply means that in many of the better manuscripts, it's not included there. But I firmly believe that if I firmly believe that these would have been the words that the eunuch would have said and that Philip would have responded with in faith. And so verse 37 says, Philip says to the eunuch, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 38, 
And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. If you flip over to Acts chapter 10, you see that uh, Peter, the great leader of the church here, is uh, away. He's in a different city, and Cornelius, the centurion, who's a, who's a God-fear, is approached by the Lord in a vision. He's told to send for Peter. He does so. Peter comes. You remember the story there? This, this sheet comes down, and all kinds of unclean animals, and God says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter has this conversation with the Lord, which ultimately led him to following these men back to Cornelius, this centurion. He preaches the gospel to him and to his household, and they immediately follow in believers' baptism. Look there in verse Verse 47, Luke tells us, they say, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So in these two passages, we see both the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius, as well as his household, following the Lord Jesus Christ. But not just following the Lord Jesus secretly, as they easily could have. We see them publicly declaring their faith in a very open forum that they are unashamedly following Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. They could have secretly followed him. Perhaps it would have been easier for them to do so. There would have been no ridicule. No one would have known. They could have remained in the closet of their faith. But I want to tell you this morning, Christianity is not a secrecy type of religion. It's not a secrecy type of faith. There is no nature of secrecy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls us to be public with our faith, to declare it to the world. You see, in the early church, they baptized in a much different mode than we do. And I'm not talking about immersion, which we'll cover in just a moment. But they, had, they didn't have church houses like we have. They would meet outside under a tree. They would meet in someone's home. But when they went to baptize somebody, they went down to the river. They went out to the pool where the water was gathered. And so everyone could see someone who's testifying to the world and to the church that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I'm unashamed about it. Today, what we do in our churches, and I'm not uh, speaking against this, just the way it's happened over the years, but we baptize and it's all about the church. It's all about the church watching. Our baptism is here. There's walls, there's windows barring people to look inside. But if we went outside, it would be much like the early church. It would be publicly declared to the world. So our faith is a confessional faith. And it's a confessional faith because our God is a confessional God. You remember when Jesus was baptized there in Matthew 3, what took place? As soon as he went down into the water, the Father thundered from heaven. Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Gospels tell us that not only did the Father declare that, but the Holy Spirit descended in a dove and rested upon Jesus. There was a very public expression of God the Father's attitude and uh, perception of what was going on in the life of Jesus. He's declaring to the world that it pleased the heart of God. So in baptism, there on your sheet you can see this. In baptism, we testify to the world that we are followers of Jesus Christ. It is a public expression of our unwavering faith in Him. So let me quickly share with you four things about baptism. First of all, let's look at the mode of baptism. The mode or the method of baptism. There's really only one mode described in the New Testament, and that is of immersion. If you've been in 
a Baptist church long enough, you understand, and you've heard this, but baptism it, it comes from the Greek word baptizo, which literally means to put under, to, to, uh, to go down in, to dip, or to immerse. So it literally means to plunge someone under the waters, to immerse them under the waters. And when I baptize some, someone, I, I'm kind of... Uh, I'm kind of dogmatic about it. I want every bit of your body to be under the water. I, I, there's been some funny moments in baptism. If you've been in church life, you've probably seen some of them. I've had people, uh, years ago, we baptized a lot of people on a Sunday morning, so we actually brought a trough in, horse trough. It's always good to get baptized in a horse trough. So we baptized, we had two of those, and we had a lot of baptisms going on. I remember this young girl was clenching to the edge of the of the horse trough and held on for dear life, and, and I was kind of determined to get her under, and so I never got her hands under because I didn't want to make a spectacle of her, but I was determined to get the rest of her under. So, you know, I kind of, I'm a little bit stronger than her, so I shoved her underneath, and I thought about holding Gloria under last week just to make sure she was serious. <laughs> I, <laughs> I told her that too, and uh, I was nice, though. I, I, I didn't. But we see here Jesus, the eunuch, and everyone else in Cornelius' household as well, if we were to look at all the examples in the New Testament, we would see that every person who's baptized in the, old, in, in the New Testament was baptized by immersion. John the Baptist was baptizing people by immersion. He wasn't sprinkling their head. He wasn't pouring water on their head as a child. He was baptizing them. The church was baptizing believers after conversion. So that's the mode it is by immersion. Secondly, I want to share with you the symbolism of baptism. What is baptism all about? What is, what's the purpose here? What's the symbolism of baptism? Well, the theological symbolism of immersion, as well as the elevation from the water, in other words, when I bring or we bring someone up from the water, it throbs with the movement of the gospel. And this is what I mean by that. Submersion, when someone goes under the water, pictures our union with Christ in his death, as well as in his burial. When someone is elevated up out of the water, it pictures our being raised with him in newness of life. And so it's the picture of the gospel. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and rose again. Now we've taught you that when you share the gospel with someone, you always have to preach the whole gospel. That Jesus was crucified, that he was buried, and yet he also was raised from the dead. And so in baptism, we're preaching the gospel, the same thing. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, he says, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what Paul's saying. So that when Jesus was crucified and buried and rose from the dead, when we are baptized into him, we also are identifying with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. So there's also further symbolism in immersion. That is, baptism pictures not only our death, burial, and resurrection, but the cleansing and the washing from sin that concurs with conversion. So when you placed your faith in Jesus, your sins were washed away. You were made whole and clean. You were made justified before the Father. That happened immediately. It doesn't happen with baptism. No, no more than when you are baptized are you placed into or publicly identifying salvation-wise, with death, burial, and resurrection. That happens at conversion. So baptism is simply a symbol of all of this. So as the person is baptized, I'm, it's a symbol that I am 
been crucified with Christ, and yet nevertheless I live. It's also symbolizing that I was once a sinner in rebellion against God, but because of Jesus and the blood that's covered my life, now my sins have been washed away. I've been forgiven. The Father looks upon me, and He doesn't see my sin. He sees the blood of the Son upon my life. So baptism is a symbol of what Jesus has done internally in our hearts. Paul when he was sharing his testimony there in Acts chapter 22, uh, as he was being arrested and he had an opportunity to, to speak to the crowd, and he shared his testimony of how there, after he met Jesus on that Damascus road, he was told to go into the city. He was told to wait there, and someone was going to come and pray over him. You know, remember, he couldn't see anything, and so he was kind of dumbfounded about what was taking place. He had seen Jesus. He had heard Jesus, and, and so his life had all of a sudden changed. Ananias is sent to speak to Paul, to pray over him, and Ananias says this. This is what Paul says in Acts 22, verse 16. Ananias said to Paul, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, some would take this verse and say, yeah, baptism is what saved you. Now, that's not what's taking place at all. Other verses in Scripture would speak against that. It's simply symbolizing what had already happened in his life. That when he met Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, all sins, past, present, and future, had been forgiven and cleansed. And so today, we sit here as a follower of Jesus Christ, holy before God the Father, cleansed of our sin before God. So baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. Let me share with you some thoughts about the subjects of baptism. In other words, who should be baptized? We read the New Testament. We see that it consistently records that baptism was always reserved for those who have professed faith in Christ. In other words, the only people who should be baptized are believers. And no and nowhere in Scripture do we see infants being baptized. Now, we've got brothers and sisters in other denominations that would teach that. But I'm telling you right now, that is a misunderstanding of the Word of God. It's always post-conversion. It's always after someone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ who are being baptized. And so it's reserved for believers if we were to go back to Pentecost, there in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches this beautiful sermon, and it brought the people of God, the Jews there who are observing Passover in the city of Jerusalem, it brought them, or the feast there of Tabernacles, it brought them to a place of faith and repentance, and so they asked Peter what they should do, and Peter declared that they were to be baptized because they had already believed in the word acts 2:41 so those who received his word were baptized we go to acts chapter 8 as we've already seen as philip's preaching of the gospel there in samaria we read when they believed philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of god in the name of jesus christ they were baptized there's all kinds of other examples in the new testament we could see and read but what we see here is this the only proper candidate for baptism is someone who is, upon hearing the gospel, believed on Jesus Christ for salvation. My personal testimony is very similar to Gloria's. I made a profession of faith the summer before my ninth grade year. I grew up in church, going on, going to church off and on. My sister had recently made a profession of faith. I knew that's what I should do. And so on a Sunday morning when the invitation was given, I went forward, prayed a sinner's prayer, was baptized the next Sunday. You've heard this testimony. But I specifically remember going home that afternoon after making my profession of faith, and I knew that nothing had changed internally. I'd been to church long enough to know that when you make a profession of faith, something's supposed to change. 
And so for, for five years, I walked in a serious doubt of my salvation. Really, I guess you could classify it. I worked my tail off to make that decision I'd made as an eighth, ninth grader um, hold to my life. I tried to work my way into this profession of faith that I had declared, and yet all the while knew that I was lost. And so as an 18-year-old freshman at the University of Arkansas, God brought me under deep conviction from 1 John chapter 5, where the Bible says, he who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son does not have life. And I realized the only thing I've got is religion, and I was really good at that at that point. And so I got down on my knees at work that afternoon, and I confessed my sin, placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and then that, that was a Thursday, and Sunday morning, I went to my church, and I grew up in a mega church. I was a, teaching Sunday school at the time with seventh grade boys, and I went before the church and said before probably 3,000 people, uh, I've been religion, living a religious life, but it's never been real, and I want to today declare that I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, and I want to follow in believers' baptism. And so I had to be baptized again. Really, I got baptized once. The first time, it didn't count. It was nothing more than jumping in the water. It was a cannonball in the church, if you will. And so those who are to be baptized are those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Let me talk to you about the necessity of baptism. Why should we be baptism? Well, we see in the New Testament that it's clear that it's not necessary for salvation. Uh, you've heard it, I'm sure, talked about many times, that when Jesus was on the cross, there was a thief next to him hanging on a cross as well. And there was another thief on the other side. One thief ridiculed Jesus, made fun of Jesus, put Jesus down. The other thief looked at Jesus and says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Remember me when you get to paradise. And Jesus looked at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, was that man ever baptized? Absolutely not. He had no opportunity to be baptized because he was crucified there on that cross. He died just a matter of hours later. And so we know that baptism does not save us, and yet there are so many denominations that teach us that baptism is in some way or some form or fashion a mode by which one is saved. We have, as Southern Baptists, rightly pushed against that heresy because to say that baptism is part of someone being saved is to say that I have some sort of work that I'm applying to what Jesus has already done for me. We know that's not the case. So it's not something, something that I add to what Jesus has done. It's Jesus plus nothing equals my salvation. And so we've pushed against that. But in doing so, I think as Southern Baptists, we have undervalued baptism. So I think what we're doing is we're raising generations in our church right now who would look at the gospel and say, I understand the gospel. I understand that I'm a sinner separated from God. I understand that I need to confess my sin, come into relationship with Jesus. But I'm not so sure about this baptism thing. It's not really that important. After all, it's not what gets me to heaven. So why should a person, a follower of Jesus, be baptized? How do we add value, the value of Scripture, back into our baptism? That's what I want to share with you here in the next couple minutes. Well, the answer to reason why we should be baptized is simply because Jesus said so. Matthew 28, 19 is pretty clear. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So the declaration, the, 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 the command here is to the church to go. It's to you and I individually to go and to share the gospel with others. And as we share and make them a disciple, as we lead them to faith in Jesus, the next thing that's, in, uh, that's on our shoulders to do, that's, that's commanded of us, is that we tell them they need to follow through in believers' baptism. So then it's on their shoulders to respond in obedience to that command. So we baptize because Jesus 
said so. Our imperative is simply to obey Christ who commanded us to be baptized. And the reason for it revolves around our confession. See, believers in the early church, as I mentioned earlier, publicly identified with Jesus through baptism. And when you do that, you are declaring to this world that I'm unashamed in my following of Jesus Christ. I know some of you are scared to death to stand up in front of the church. I, I, I mean, I'm naturally an introvert. It's, um, it's funny, I go and hang out in people's houses, and, and I'm the guy that, I mean, I'm more comfortable just kind of sitting there and watching everybody than being the life of the party. Now, I've got a little girl, Hadley, she's the life of the party. She wants everybody to know that she's in the room. I'm not that way. So I understand this to some extent. But why would we as followers of Jesus be ashamed or scared? That's really what it is. It, it really comes down, I, I'm a little bit of ashamed to get up from the church to declare that I'm a follower of Jesus. That's not good for the church, that we would be scared to testify of our, to testify of our faith before the church. We shouldn't just be in front of the church. We should be willing to be able to do that publicly before a watching world. That's what the early church was doing. You see, when they were leaving paganism or they were leaving Judaism, they were publicly declaring before everybody that could see it that I'm unashamedly a follower of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, they're declaring the gospel to them. They're declaring to a watching world that I didn't find life in Judaism. I didn't find life in paganism. I didn't find life in Roman mythology. Uh, mythological beliefs. I didn't find life in any of these things. I've only found life in Jesus. I'm a sinner and I've been saved by the grace of God. I've identified with this death, burial, and resurrection. I've been cleansed from all my sin, past, present, and future. And I don't care who knows. In fact, I want everyone to know. That's what the early church was declaring. And so why are we in the church today so timid when it comes to baptism? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, be baptized. You should be baptized. I'm not a superhero by any stretch of the imagination, but when I, was, when I came to Christ as an 18-year-old freshman, it was no, there was no wavering in my decision. It was, I've placed my faith in Jesus. The next step is obedience in baptism. There, there was no question there. It was just what, I understood that's what you do. And so this morning, if you have not followed the Lord in believer's baptism, but you're a follower of Jesus, let's baptize you on May 13th. Why do we baptize? It's because we, in it, we are declaring the gospel. Let me answer this second question. Why do we observe the Lord's Supper? I'm going to try to do this quickly. Because we still have to observe the Lord's Supper at some point today. Why do we observe the Lord's Supper? In the Lord's Supper, we remember. In the baptism, we're declaring. In the Lord's Supper, we are remembering. Look at Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 is when Jesus is sitting with his disciples and they're observing the Passover meal says there in verse 19, it says, And he, Jesus, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Here's the statement about the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we testify to ourselves that we are recipients of God's grace through Christ. So it is a private reflection. And when I say private, I'm not talking about just you and the Lord. It's a private reflection as we, the church, are reflecting upon the Lord's unwavering commitment 
to redeem us. And so in baptism in the early church, the doors were wide open. There were no walls, no windows, nothing hiding this, this um, symbol that God had called them to do. Now, in the Lord's Supper, oftentimes they were in a house or behind closed doors. And so that's the, the, the image, the idea here. It's a private reflection of our Lord's unwavering commitment to redeem us. So let me give you three features that I think we need to highlight as we seek to understand the Lord's Supper. First of all, uh, the idea of memory. Memory. The theological groundwork, if you've studied your Bible, been in church long enough, you know that the theological groundwork for the New Testament observance of the Lord's Supper is the Passover. The Passover meal was there in the Exodus when the angel of death was coming over. It's the tenth plague that was cast upon Egypt, and God told Moses to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood, and so he sent Joshua out, and they took that blood, and they applied it to every doorpost of the Jews in Egypt. And so when the angel of death came by to kill the firstborn son, they would pass, the angel would pass over those who were covered with the blood. And so the blood of the Passover was a shield against the wrath of God toward humanity. As we move fast forward to the New Testament times, we see that the Passover seed or the meal there had morphed into a ceremony that included not only the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, but also in addition to those, two, those things was the partaking of four cups of wine. And so Jesus in, instilled into this ceremony the ultimate redemptive significance when he took the wine and he equated it to his blood. And he took that bread and he equated it to his body. And so he took this, this meal that the Jews have been observing for centuries and he said, this is what this meal's been pointing to as, the, as it shielded the people from God's wrath and brought death upon the people. Now my blood is the Passover lamb, the final sacrifice will shield my followers from, Jesus, from the Father's judgment and the death upon our lives. So just as the Passover observance was instituted as a memorial of redemption, now the blood of Jesus and the Lord's Supper is a memorial of redemption of what Christ did to satisfy the wrath of God there upon the cross. So when we take the bread, we must remember the Lord's body, how it became sin for us The one who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, the Bible says. And when we take the cup, we must remember the source of our freedom from sin, that it is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's not our good works, it's not our good religious efforts, it's simply the blood of Jesus that brings the remission for our sins. That's what this meal is to do. It is for us to remember. So there's this idea of memory. Secondly, there's this idea of communion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we, who are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So here Paul uh, is saying to us, when the church observes the Lord's Supper together, there is literally an experience of koinia. There's this experience of fellowship or communion with Christ and the church. We are one body with one head. Remember Paul's imagery there in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about how we are one body of many members And yet we have one head that is of Jesus Christ. And so when we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are experiencing a deepened sense of communion with Christ and with one another. Therefore, the meal is reserved only for those in relationship with Christ and His 
church. It's not a meal for everybody. We're not, uh, we're not asking. In fact, we would ask you, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, being a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, we would ask that you simply abstain from partaking of the meal in just a moment. It's not that we're uh, passing judgment or condemning or anything like that. It's just the Bible would teach us that it's for believers and believers who have been baptized. And so you don't have to be a member of our church. You just have to be in relationship with the Lord and have followed in believers' baptism. So there's a special communion that takes place in the church when we observe the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, I want to talk about the gospel. When we observe the Lord's Supper, we are testifying to ourselves that we are recipients of God's grace through Christ, but we are also proclaiming the gospel. You see, when we ask those who are not followers of Jesus to let the elements pass by, like my oldest daughter, who's nine years old, who's really close to uh, making a profession of faith. I mean, we're praying for her every day and, and asking the Lord to, to open her heart. She knows and understands the gospel, at least on a, on a cognitive level, but she's yet, not yet come to faith in Christ. And so if she was in here this morning, she would have to abstain from taking the Lord's Supper. Why? Because she's not placed her faith in Jesus, not followed in believer's baptism. So we're not condemning her. But actually, in in, in passing the elements and asking those who are not in Christ to abstain, we're preaching the gospel. We're saying that there's still something missing in your life. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's reserved for those in relationship with Christ and with his church. Also, Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should partake of it in a worthy manner. Our life should be a life that is in right relationship with the Lord. We're a follower of Jesus, yes, but we're also confessing our sin, and we're not walking at a guilty distance. And so this morning, if there's sin that you've been harboring onto and you're unwilling to let go, you should also abstain from the Lord's Supper. And so even in that, we're proclaiming the gospel that there is freedom and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Bring your sins to the foot of the cross. Lay them down. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Why do we observe the Lord's Supper? In the Lord's Supper, we testify to ourselves that we are recipients of God's grace through Christ. It is our private reflection of our Lord's unwavering commitment to us. So I'm going to ask Nick to come. We're going to just do some internal inspection this morning as we move into a time of invitation. I'm going to ask him to place all clear band. But I want to ask you these questions. This morning, can you say with all certainty that you are in relationship with Jesus Christ? There's been a time in your life when you understood that you're a sinner separated from God. Your sin is sending you actually to hell. You're under the wrath and the judgment of a holy God. And then you heard the gospel. You repented of your sin. You placed your faith in Jesus. And today, can you say that with all certainty that you are a child of God? If not, what is it that would hold you back from doing that? What is it that's holding you back from that? If I had today $10 million in a briefcase and I said, if you want this $10 million, all you got to do is come. How many of you would come? Let's be honest. Everybody would come, Right? $10 million would change all of our lives. Shoot, if somebody showed up this morning and walked to the doors and says, I've got $10 million for the church, you know who would be taking it? All of us, because it could do a lot of things for the glory of God. This morning, God offers to us something greater than anything money can buy. Eternal life with the God who made you for himself. And yet so many people will hear that. Because of whatever reason, they'll say no. What is it that would hold you back 
from following Jesus Christ today. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've never been baptized, what is it that's holding you back? I think I've argued pretty well that there's no reason you shouldn't be baptized. Don't tell me you're scared. Not a good enough reason. My, if my daughters came to me and said, Daddy, I don't want to do that even though I know you told me to. I don't want to do it because I'm scared. It doesn't matter if you're scared. I told you to do it, right? So do it. This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus and there's sin in your life and you're just unwilling to confess it, why? Why would you live in sin? Why would you live in, under the judgment of God and, and the consequences that your sins bring? As a Christian, bring those to Jesus and lay them down. Why do you walk in a guilty distance? We're going to sing a song. It's an old hymn, Just As I Am, and it's got a little twist to it. We've sang it before here. Great thing about the gospel is that God doesn't call us to clean ourselves up and then come to him. He says, just come as you are. I'll clean you up. And so let's stand and let's sing in response to the gospel this morning and wherever you're at spiritually. Whatever the Lord has placed upon your heart, I want to encourage you to be obedient. God will receive you just as you are. And so let's declare that this morning. Let's ask the Lord to search our hearts. Let's prepare ourselves to receive the Lord's Supper.